Welcome to Private Market Talks, where we talk with industry leaders about their strategies and stories. Private Market Talks is produced by Proskauer, a law firm built to serve asset managers. I'm your host, Peter Antushik. Today, I'm talking with Justin Pluff, Deputy Chief Investment Officer for Carlisle Credit. Carlisle is one of the world's largest asset managers with almost $375 billion of assets under management. And roughly 40% of that, or about $146 billion, is allocated across their global credit platform in liquid, illiquid, and real estate strategies. During our conversation, Justin shares some thoughts about Carlisle's new CEO, the macroeconomic environment, and we wrap up with some recommended reading. And now, my conversation with Justin Pluff. Welcome, Justin. I appreciate you joining uh, us on Private Market Talks. Thanks, Peter. Pleasure uh, to be here. Thank you. So, Carlisle has received a lot of attention over the last several months uh, as it has undergone its extensive CEO search. You've now landed on a new one, Harvey Schwartz. Can you tell us a little bit about him and his focus on private credit? Yeah, well, Harvey's a proven leader, and he brings a fantastic career experience to Carlisle. Uh, he was a CFO of Goldman Sachs and then co-president there. So I think he's going to be tremendously helpful to our business. In fairness to Harvey, he's only been on the job eight days as we uh, record this. But I can tell you that the number one focus is growth. Uh, and that's really been true for a while now. So that's not a change in Carlisle's strategy. I think having Harvey on board is going to help us accelerate that growth. And it's probably no surprise that a lot of that growth is expected to come in credit. The private credit markets are growing at a rate much faster than private equity, which is a more mature business. And so our business, I think, will continue to see that type of accelerated growth in the coming years. And Harvey's made it clear that you know that's critical to his vision for the firm. So I'm, I'm pretty excited that uh, the search part of this process is over and we can get back to doing some good investing. And what do you think has been fueling the growth in uh, private credit? Well, the whole world has become more private. Uh, there are fewer public companies than there once were. Uh, companies are staying private longer even when they do go public. So there really has been a long-term trend towards the private markets. Uh, private credit is probably 10 to 15 years behind private equity uh, in terms of its development as, as an investment asset class on its own. Mm -hmm. um, but we are seeing that start to change. And when you think about the capital structure of a private company, you generally will have two turns, three turns of debt versus every turn of equity. Now, if you look at dry powder in the private markets, it's actually flipped. There's much more private equity dry powder in mm. the world than there is private credit. So that needs to change, right? Just, just to match up with the capital structures of companies, we need more money coming into private credit. You've seen that, uh, that trend continue for at least the last 10 years, and I, I expect it's going to continue for at least the next five to 10 until private credit just catches up. To where private equity is. There seems to be an almost insatiable appetite for private credit investment by investors. Well, I think for a long time it was driven by the search for yield. Mm -hmm. We lived for a decade uh, or more in a very low interest rate environment. So any product, any investment asset class that could provide significant yield was certainly something investors wanted to look at. 
Now, today, uh, we have rates that have gone up dramatically in just the last 12 months. It's very rare that we would experience this kind of interest rate shock, uh, at least in the United States. But private credit as a value opportunity, I think, maintains its attractiveness to investors. You're getting now equity-like returns, at least in terms of yield, mm -hmm. for investing in senior secured assets. And that's a that's an exciting thing as a private credit investor. Mm. Uh, I mean, it, there is that aspect of spread that you're always looking at. But when you can come into work and, and look at the investment opportunity and see, I can make 10%, 12%, 14% for taking credit risk. Right. Historically, that's a great value. And I think that today is what's driving the continued interest in private credit. Mm. And wh what are the yields looking, yields to maturity looking like in private credit compared to other benchmarks? Sure. Well, if you think about um, in this higher rate environment, uh, investment grade credit has probably gone to you know, 6%, 7%. Um, but in, in, in private credit, uh, our spreads uh, over the base rate are generally speaking in line with history. Spreads haven't gapped out materially. They're not mm -hmm. above, they're not below, they're in line with history. But what's really changed is, is that base rate, mm -hmm. right? And so now when you have a base rate of four to 5%, you put the spread on top of that mm -hmm. and senior secured loans are nine or 10%. Mm -hmm. You get into the middle market and you get above that, you get to 11, 12. If you're doing transitional capital, we can get returns um, that model out to uh, mid to high teens. Mm. And if you think about that in the context of history, those are private equity-like returns, right? Right. right. And, but we're getting them for taking credit risk. Yeah. So the, the calculus has changed, the whole curve is, has shifted up, but I think compared to traditional fixed income, certainly compared to treasuries, IG, there is still a big gap there where private credit can add value to a portfolio. Mm -hmm. And how does private credit compare to the yields on a syndicated loan? Yeah, we, it depends what you're doing, but it's always going to be somewhere 200 basis points to 500 basis points, maybe more uh, above the syndicated market. That's generally what we've seen mm -hmm. through, through history. And the lower end of that would be kind of your traditional regular way, middle market lending. Um, the upper end of that and beyond is sort of that transitional capital opportunistic credit. But there's definitely a premium that has persisted through time mm -hmm. for doing truly private deals, for paying for that origination, for taking illiquidity risk and complexity risk. Mm -hmm. uh, those are the reasons that we're getting paid in private credit. I would say, though, that more and more we're seeing the broadly syndicated market and the private credit market uh, start to overlap. Mm -hmm. You're seeing more deals where maybe the senior will be done in the syndicated space, um, but the junior portion will go directly to privates. And then really in the in the last three to six months, the banks have retrenched. I think it's it's well publicized in the media that there are some big overhangs in the leveraged loan market in terms of big loans that didn't get uh, off the books of the banks last year. So banks are um, being very spare with their capital today. Sure. And private credit lenders are stepping in to that risk that used to be uh, broadly syndicated. So I, I do think you're seeing kind of the industry move towards um, less of a division between these markets and, and more of a continuum among them. And will that cause a compression in the yields? We're not seeing that so far. Interesting. Uh, it's really the premium that you get for complexity and illiquidity has been persistent for some time. Now, 
eventually, as these markets get larger, they probably uh, will compress just because that's the natural state of any asset class, right? Mm -hmm. it, it starts out as esoteric. And when I started this business 17 years ago, certainly even leveraged loans, syndicated loans were considered an alternative asset right. class. Uh, today, they're not. You can get your bank loan exposure in uh, the form of an ETF if you want, certainly a mutual fund. So not really an alternative asset class anymore. We'll see that over time, perhaps with private credit, but as long as you, you're dealing with origination that's proprietary and deals that are not cookie cutter, that are complex, um, that may have an element or significant element of illiquidity, uh, people have to pay for that. There has to be a premium for that over time. And, and we've seen that historically persist. And you've also provide a, a certainty of execution. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the biggest areas where we compete is the certainty of execution and being a partner to yeah. borrowers. It's That's very different point. to work with, with one counterparty that is invested in your success as a company and that is aligned with you versus a syndicate of lenders that you know you know one of whom is all that large and you know really can't act as a unified partner to you as you try to build your business. And I think a, a lot of the great deals that we've done in the last few years, right. it has been that sort of partnership approach with companies. Right, 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 right. So in terms of the syndicated market, there's obviously not particularly accessible right now. That's going to change over time. What impact is that going to have on your ability to deploy capital in the private credit market? So we have a very broadly diversified business across the whole universe of private credit. Mm -hmm. um, in the leveraged loan space, we are the second largest manager of CLOs in the world. So we would be very happy for CLO formation to come back and for the leveraged markets to, to pick up. What's going to drive that is uh, large cap M&A activity. Mm -hmm. um, so if you want to if you want to know where the leveraged loan uh, market's going to go, watch large cap buyout. That's what's going to drive it. At the moment, I don't really worry about the distinction between that syndicated market and the private markets because, as I said, there is started to be so much overlap, so much opportunity, and so much need for capital that right now deployment isn't something that that keeps me up at night. I think you'll see over time a continuum where we move maybe at one point more towards the syndicated type of solution and then another point back towards private markets. And, and it should go back and forth between those over time, just depending on cost of capital and, and where the M&A activity is coming from. Now, private credit has generally uh, gone up market. Uh, the deals have gotten larger and larger. You're seeing multi-billion dollar uh, transactions. Uh, I guess the general question I have is, is, is bigger better? Or is it a function of having to deploy large sums of capital? Well, I think it's a function of uh, borrowers now looking to private capital as a real solution. Mm -hmm. And there are many companies, larger companies that 10 years ago would not have considered the private credit markets because those markets were not as robust as they would need to be to do a billion dollar transaction, a $2 billion transaction. Today, where that capital has, has flown into the private, uh, flowed into the private markets, it is now an option for those borrowers uh, to seek out a private solution. And for all the reasons we've been talking about, the certainty of execution, dealing with complexity and illiquidity, it's now something that I think larger companies look at as a potential solution. Now, you mentioned that obviously, and naturally, uh, private credit follows the M&A market. The M&A market has been off this year, to say the least. Where do you see the M&A market you know, developing over the next several months to through the rest of this year? Well, I think that we are going through a period 
of price discovery and transition in this time of higher interest rates, mm -hmm. right? There's been a massive interest rate shock. Uh, what that means is that everybody from the banks and insurance companies that typically deal in investment grade, they're repricing uh, what type of uh, risk they will take to the private credit market. Obviously, our yields have gone up. We're trying to figure out exactly where the best uh, places to put that capital are. Um, but it also flows down to the equity side. And if you're uh, doing a buyout and your second lien is yielding 15% and your first lien is yielding 10%, mm -hmm. you know, you do the math. You, you have to right. either pay less for the equity of the company you're buying or you need to figure out a way to generate more value from it. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that process of price discovery due to the increase in interest rates is still happening. And there's mm -hmm. still a bid ask between buyers and sellers over time, especially if we see some stabilization in interest rates, not necessarily a reduction, just a stabilization, you'll, that process will, will come through, right? And then you'll start to see more M&A activity. So we're already actually starting to see things pick up a little bit in terms of our pipeline. So oh, I, okay. I think during the course of 2023, I do think you'll, you'll start to see a normalization there. Got it. Do you think it'll ever get back to what we saw in 21 and early 22? I think it's going to take some time. Um, you know, that was a particularly busy period. We don't need it to get back to that level in order to have a robust asset class and, and plenty of opportunity to deploy capital. Got it. So I know you uh, uh, have a, a broad uh, base of borrowers. You collect a lot of data. Uh, I'm kind of curious as to, you know, what you're seeing in the macroeconomic environment informed by the data that you have. Right. So when we talk about macroeconomics at, at Carlisle, usually we're looking at our proprietary data. Um, we have over 1,500 lending relationships and, and own over 220 companies uh, around the world. So we really do have uh, very good real-time data and it is, it is global. Um, so uh, we look at that as a huge tool for us in investing. Uh, a few themes that I'll, I'll touch on. Uh, one would be inflation definitely abating, especially in the area of durable goods. We see this in things like the, the uh, container shipping cost. Um, we see this in things like the cost of uh, used cars going down. So um, certainly some downward pressure on, on inflation, although it, it remains maybe higher than we've seen it in the past, uh, but the trend line is, is downward now. And I think that's relatively relatively clear. We do see a relatively strong consumer, especially in areas like leisure spending, um, uh, air travel, uh, hotels, all these experiences uh, mm -hmm. that, that people were not able to spend capital on in COVID, they're now back. Yeah. Uh, and if you've tried to fly anywhere, you probably have noticed that the, the price of tickets is uh, pretty high and, and the seats are full. So we do see strength there. Um, I think in terms of interest rates, uh, you know, we'll have to see, right? I, I think the, the consensus is that we'll end up somewhere at five and a half percent, something like that. And I often get the question, okay, well, how bad is that for your borrowers? That means the interest uh, cost or interest expense is going to go up. We think that most companies will be able to handle that mm -hmm. at least for some period of time. Not, not all of them, not all of them. But uh, the good news is that this is happening on the back of a very benign environment. We have default rates below 1%. Uh, the vast, vast majority of our companies have been able to handle the transition well enough so far, push through price increases. Right. Does that um, surprise you, by the way? Has that surprised you, that very low default rate? 
Well, I think I'm, I'm always a bit surprised at how well company management ends up doing mm. uh, in difficult environments, especially in the U.S., uh, where I think our companies have done a great job of, of adjusting. And in, in COVID, uh, when that hit in March of 2020, we all, for a period of five or six weeks, thought, you know, wow, we've never handled anything like this before. What what impact is this going to have? And we were really surprised at how nimble companies were and able to uh, restructure their needs mm. uh, for their business. So um, I, I guess I should stop being surprised at, at uh, how well management uh, does. But, you know, so far, so good. I, I do think that there is a longer term pressure on wages that is going to be a story for 2023. Mm -hmm. uh, companies are going to have to figure out how to operate in this higher wage environment, and that that will be a significant challenge. And uh, in terms of uh, the default rate, where do you see it going between now and say the end of the year, or even to 2024? Yeah, you said I think you're about a one percent. We're uh, a little. Yeah, I think we're a little below one percent right yeah. now, and that's. It. I think that's by the way consistent with our you know, Proskauer's uh, private default index. It's about. 1% across the portfolio that right. we track. Right. So Yeah, that, that that would make sense and when I talk about our own portfolio, I would say um the issues that we have are idiosyncratic issues. They're company specific mm. issues. There's not a a swath of companies all having the same problem. Um and I think that's, you know, for us a good thing because we know okay, we we can handle these these special issues, but we don't see a big wave. You know, where do I think it's going? Well, up from 1%, <laughs> uh, but in the uh, context of history, that leaves quite a bit of room. The long-term average is three to three and a half percent. I think if you were to look at uh, the general Wall Street estimates, people will say maybe it gets to 4%. We got a little bit above four in uh, the COVID spike there, but nowhere near the 10% LTM default right. rates that we saw in the in the great financial crisis. Right. So I, I think it's a higher than 1%, not necessarily benign, but um, certainly not that far above historical norms. Are there any particular sectors that you have on your that you watch a little more closely than others yeah well the the tech sector in general mm -hmm. has grown at such an incredible rate and also was a sector uh, dramatically impacted by covid really in, in many ways in, in positive uh, manner but i think that's why you're now seeing companies like amazon like meta um have significant layoffs whereas that's mm -hmm. not happening in other parts of the economy so um, the tech sector became a much much larger part of the private credit markets uh, in the last five years. And that's probably the area where I, I look at uh, the most closely because yes. it is the newest. It has uh, not as much historical data uh, and very, very much impacted by COVID. Yeah, I'm kind of curious to see how some of that plays out. You know, obviously there's a, been a, a lot of reoccurring revenue deals done in the tech sector. And I don't think we've seen any real workouts or restructurings, maybe workouts, not the right thing, but certainly restructurings in, in a public sector on reoccurring revenue and how that will play out will be interesting to see. That is certainly an area that's grown dramatically for private credit. Yes. And uh, you're absolutely right to see how it plays out will be interesting. But you know, hopefully what we try to do is make investments in companies that we really believe in, mm. uh, that we think have a reason for being even through a difficult economic scenario. And that goes for every sector that we that we invest in. You know, yeah. There's nothing, nothing that can replace investing with a great company. And the other thing I, I don't think you have this time around that we had during the uh, great financial crisis is a maturity wall coming up. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we, we don't have a significant maturity wall in the near term. Um, we do have 
the issue of CLO formation, which needs to come back for the for the syndicated market, since that's now about two thirds uh, of the market. But I think it's safe to say we have some time uh, to deal with this transition mm -hmm. to a higher rate environment. And and so far, uh, I think that that will that will play itself out probably over the course of 2023. Um, no near term concern, but uh, we'll we'll have to see what happens. Yeah. So a uh, pivoting now uh, from uh, you know what a, what defaults might look like to deployment, um, where do you see opportunities? Sure, well, there's lots of interesting places to deploy capital today. Uh, number one on my list would be this area of transitional capital. It really and in explain the non-sponsored space. Explain what that sure. is. Sure, yeah. this is where a company is going through some type of transition. They're changing mm -hmm. their business model. They're spinning something out. They're doing an acquisition. Um, something where they're, the loan that they need, the capital solution that they need is not cookie cutter. They're not going to be able to get it from a bank. They may not even be able to get it from a traditional, regular way middle market lender like the BDCs. That most of those lenders look for sort of a very specific lender profile, mm -hmm. um, and they don't really do a lot of bespoke structural solutions. So there is this group of companies where if you have the direct relationships with the C-suite, with the founders, with uh, very often their family-owned businesses, mm -hmm. um, and you can partner with them to create a bespoke solution, then you can get really great value and, and help them through their transition. So we do a lot of that type of lending. Uh, the good news about that is that we often are able to negotiate great structural protections mm -hmm. that you wouldn't get. In, in leverage loans or in a regular way, uh, middle market deal. Like covenants. Like covenants, that's right. <laughs> we, we, were, we all remember when covenants used to be a thing. Uh, we still get those in transitional deals. Um, so, so that's great. And then obviously, when you're providing that certainty of capital and a bespoke creative solution, you can charge more for that. Mm -hmm. um, the downside of it, of course, is that it's transitional. So our prepayment rate in those loans tends to be very high. The, the weighted average outstanding time is only something like 24 months. So what that means is that you need a team of people out there originating. Mm -hmm. And this is where being part of Carlisle really helps us. Uh, we have a fantastic network. We do have direct relationships with these companies, both on the credit side and on the private equity side. Um, so for us, that's a real advantage to be able to source these deals. And, and when you can source them, there's some of the best value out there. And I assume they're, there's, they're less competitive they're much less competitive. We see uh, maybe a handful of other people that that do this type of lending, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to the middle market space where there's there are many many competitors. Mm -hmm. uh, and very often, because these deals aren't syndicated and and often not intermediated by a bank, we might be the only person or one of two or three that are offering a solution. So I, th I think that's a really interesting area. Are there other areas that you're looking at? Yeah, well, the other uh, the other area I would say is anywhere where the banks have really retrenched. And we've actually been able to go to uh, some of the companies that you may have read about in the press and offer them junior capital solutions mm -hmm. uh, while the banks figure out what to do with their with their senior capital. And then in the dearth of CLO uh, execution today, I actually think there are certain CLO tranches that are mm -hmm. exceptionally valuable. The double B tranche, for instance, we've been buying those at yields that pencil out to mid-teens, mm -hmm. um, and that's very, very unusual historically. That's typically what you would get on your on your equity investment in a CLO, not in the in the rated debt. So I think there are pockets there in kind of the more traditional area where where banks have stepped back that we can step in and really generate yields that look very attractive on a historical basis. So I know private credit largely has, has migrated to the senior secured, and you're talking about doing the junior tranches, and I think you've recently done some pref 
uh, in that area. And that was a that was we saw that as a growth area. Yeah. In over the last couple of years, but I, I'm wondering, has there been a has there been a pullback in in the pref, or is that that is an area of opportunity where it's actually expanding? I think it's an area of opportunity. And we should you should describe for our listeners sure. what we mean by pref in this area. Right. Well, you're really making a a debt like investment, but that is below the rest of the debt stack. Mm -hmm. So not a senior secured loan, not even a, a second lien or, or a bond, but something that has equity elements, but some debt-like protections. Yeah. And, and really, every one of them is so bespoke, it's, it's hard to generalize. But that kind of mid-level capital right above the equity is definitely a growth area. Mm -hmm. um, it's an area of a lot of complexity. So you really have to be able to drill down into the industry, into the company. Uh, and this is where having the, the private equity knowledge base and that industry knowledge base within Carlisle really helps us. But you know, we see opportunity really up and down the capital stack. We are doing everything from the most senior loan in a capital structure to, to deep pref. And it's just about finding value in that company and providing a capital solution that works for that particular borrower. What about uh, sectors as um, in terms of that you might be focusing on? Well, we're lucky to be able to be sector agnostic, really. And mm -hmm. we have teams that cover all sectors. Um, you know, I mentioned tech as one that, you know, might be a little bit more concerning in certain mm -hmm. areas. But otherwise, you know, we're really we're really finding opportunities across various sectors. Uh, and because we have the teams and the capability and the knowledge base, you know, we're able to access wherever we think the best value is on a company by company standpoint. Got it. And what about geographically? So we're very focused on um, the US, uh, North America, I should say, and Western Europe today. Uh, that's where we're doing most of our investing. Outside of that area, I think we are experiencing a period of heightened geopolitical risk, at least in the minds of RLPs. So for instance, investing in Asia for USLPs is, is something of a concern um, right now. Uh, so our focus has really been on the US and Western Europe. And until we face issues with capability to deploy, I think that's going to be our, our focus. So I want to talk about geopolitical risk for a minute because, um, you know, you can't help but in the paper every day read about geopolitical risk, the war in Ukraine and what the consequences of that might be, whether that's contained, the rising tensions between U.S. and China, even domestically, uh, the, the coming 2024 elections and what that might mean and the balkanization of, of our political environment. Mm. I'm wondering, as you know, you, from your seat, in the investment uh, side of on credit for uh, Carlisle, how you take into account these risks and how has your analysis and assessment of these risks changed over the last few years? Well, I think we're all much more cognizant of these risks than we were five to 10 years ago. And really the key word is uncertainty. Mm -hmm. They provide a level of uncertainty in investing uh, that, it, has to give you pause and frankly has to result in a higher expected return in order to make those investments. Uh, we definitely are seeing our LPs be very concerned about these issues and, and I'll, I'll highlight the relationship between the United States and China as one that you know, 
hasn't resulted in anything all that bad yet, but where every LP I talk to is is very, very focused on that. Carlisle being a global firm with a significant presence there, I do think we have expertise better than most to navigate that, but it, it creates uncertainty. Yeah. It, the other thing that we're very focused on is the ability of the companies we invest with to navigate this environment. Mm. A lot of companies were caught off guard in COVID because they relied on other geographies uh, for their supply chain. And you're seeing a lot of companies now uh, try to onshore um, and create more redundancy mm. in their business model. And ultimately, that's a costly thing, um, but could be a good thing. And I think something that companies have to consider today because the environment is just less certain geopolitically than it once was. Sure, and the, wor the world is, is less flat in that regard. We are retrenching as a, as a global economic community in a way that is, I think, surprising. And, and I don't know that it will be a long-term trend, but certainly it has been a short-term trend and a new thing that we need to navigate, a new thing that we have to think about significantly. Before COVID, uh, my traveling to the Asia regions, going to China, going really anywhere in the world, uh, to talk about our business was not something I thought twice about. And mm -hmm. and today, uh, I think it's certainly things where we have to decide what areas of the world do we think are uh, the best places for us to be right now for a variety of reasons mm -hmm. to invest our LP's capital well. And that, do you have a a methodology for for quantifying that risk or is it more a general assessment Yeah, I put that in the category of <laughs> unquantifiable. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it, what it... What it results in really is just that uncertainty. Um, and uncertainty in investment is a bad thing. And generally speaking, you need excess return to, uh, uh, to compensate you for that. And so when we look at investments, we are now looking with an eye towards geopolitical risk that we maybe haven't in the past. And that means where we see geopolitical risk, uh, we need to be compensated for that um, as best we can. I've been thinking about this a lot because I'm going to be speaking with Tina Fordham, who is a geopolitical expert, and, and just in terms of how investors are taking into account geopolitical risk has radically changed over the last several years. For sure it has. Uh, it's much closer to the top of the list of concerns that we have mm. than it was uh, five years ago. There's no doubt about that. And I think uh, COVID laid bare a lot of the differences. Uh, that we have in our systems geopolitically as well. Uh, so that is now something that we are far more focused on than we once were. And I think we'll continue to be a focus. It, it, these issues do not seem to be uh, mm -hmm. going away anytime soon. I think we're going to have to learn to live with them. As, in, as investors, we need to make some real serious choices about where we're willing to deploy our capital given this uh, new set of risks. And it's, it's not just where, it, it's not just beyond our borders. It's here, you must be taken into an account here domestically in terms of either uh, a type of company, an industry, or, or something. Well, everything seems to be political today, and <laughs> the definition of ESG seems to change depending on what state you might be in. Um, yeah. It's it's an interesting trend in the investment industry, uh, so we'll have to see where it goes. But certainly, those are the types of things that we weren't thinking about five years ago, and today you, you have to consider when you're uh, deciding how to deploy capital and how to best provide value to your investors. Great. If you think about uh, the industry over the next five years, what are some of the things that you think might happen or will happen that will surprise most people? Well, I think the private markets are definitely uh, coming to the individual investor. 
uh, meaning that there will be more and more products for private wealth, uh, for retail investors uh, to access these markets. The, the markets have just become so large that you know, really they deserve a place in just about any diversified investment portfolio. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of progress made on how we can deliver that investment product to individual investors. So in the next five years, I think the, the number of institutional investors that are in the private space probably will not change all that dramatically. I think we're gonna see the growth is in individual investors and, and also in the insurance space. I think that'll create uh not only huge opportunity, but um, there's big differences between dealing with institutional money and individual, even if it's higher net worth, individual money. There is tremendous difference, uh, both in the structure of the funds that you mm -hmm. offer, um, the expectations in terms of reporting and what type of information they need, and, and, and of course, headline risk, yeah. right? So I, I think all of those things are things that the industry is sorting through, but there's no doubt in my mind that private markets are coming to retail in a big way. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, so what are you reading or listening to that you think might, that is helpful for your work? Well, I don't, I don't know how helpful it is to my work, but if anyone hasn't yet read the uh, Matt Levine long form article on cryptocurrency, right. I highly recommend yes. it. Um, and, and it sprung to mind because when things come to retail, I often get the question about tokenization uh, or other technology used to distribute these products. And I think they're eventually, I'm not saying in the next five years, but eventually some of the technology that's come out of cryptocurrency, I think will make its way uh, into the investment world. And I, I thought that, that that particular long form article was about as accessible as cryptocurrency can be for someone like myself that has no background in it. Yes, yes, yes. I I, I yet to be convinced about cryptocurrency. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not uh, convinced uh, either, but uh, the technology is very interesting and actually has application well beyond just yeah. cryptocurrency. Certainly the blockchain technology yeah, does, for, for sure. sure. And I guess the same question, but you know, for fun and entertainment. Uh, well, I, I'm I uh, actually am headed uh, on a vacation to to Italy soon, oh, nice. um, and I'm, I'm very excited. I've been very few times anyway. So uh, we're going to go to the Vatican, and in anticipation of that, I'm reading the history of the of the Catholic Church. Um, but I'm only up to the fourth century, so I have a, I have a okay. lot of work to do here. But I, I thought that would be a good thing to read before I went. Other than that, I'm just uh, rooting for the Celtics and the Bruins there to go, take home friend. the titles. Good, 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 good call. Well, listen, I appreciate you joining us on Private Market Talks. It was a good call. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Appreciate it. All right. Take care. Bye. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Private Market Talks. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to like, subscribe, and share it. And if you want more information or wish to comment, go to privatemarkettalks.com.